0: Future proof extra from News Talk. Now, for literally millennia, the peoples and states of Western Europe were at war with each other. They fought the Nine Years' War, the Hundred Years' War, the Napoleonic Wars, two world wars, and way too many others to mention. We're at war again, in a way. And in these situations, people hated each other. It was a cauldron of us versus them. But when you think of world wars and the Napoleonic Wars, a lot of the time, That hate just went away. So where is it gone? And is it possible to eliminate hate altogether? Well, Matthew Williams is professor of criminology at the School of Social Sciences, director of Hate Lab and the Social Data Science Lab at Cardiff University, and he's also the author of a new book called The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate, and What We Can Do to Stop It. He joins me now. You're very welcome to the program, Matthew. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, what, is, what is the hate lab? Why would you, why would you work <laughs> somewhere called the hate lab? It sounds terrible.
1: I appreciate uh, it might sound slightly daunting to work in the hate lab, but ultimately it's a lab that studies hate uh, and the term hate lab seemed the most appropriate uh, name for it. But ultimately what we do is um, conduct the science, if you like, of of hate or understanding hate. A lot of our work involves, for example, looking at online hate speech and figuring out uh, where it comes from, why it happens, how it spreads, and how to stop it from spreading using things like counter speech. So much of our work is kind of experimental, but we also work with computer scientists to, to figure out some of those really sort of tricky questions.
0: So um, give me a for instance, like what, what, what can we tell
1: through, through this sort of monitoring? What can we tell about hate? Well, people ask me, uh, you know, is hate more uh, prevalent now than it ever has been before? And it's very difficult to measure hate. Uh, and prejudice. It's something that we've struggled with for the last 50, 60 years in in social psychology and criminology and other cognate disciplines. Um, And so measuring it is key to understanding if it's got worse. But in my book, I kind of outline that the presence of social media actually acts like an accelerator or a megaphone for hatred. Essentially what it does, it provides uh, sort of a 24-7 a uh, uh, service for hate, if you like, that can travel and permeate the home. Um, no one's safe from it in essence and ultimately it's it's always waiting there for you if you're being targeted so so it changes the nature of hate in a way and and what the lab is is designed to do is to understand that nature understand if any of that hate is say organized is it just sort of lone wolves uh, taking to the net venting their frustrations Um, or is it you know also organized uh, by groups of individuals for example maybe the far right maybe ISIS you know hate comes in many forms and it can be organized, and it's important to understand uh, that level of organization if we want to try and tackle it.
0: So what do we see on social media? Presumably um, when something that has an element of uh, of race or an element of gender, like we're looking at um, the Supreme Court hearings at the moment, a uh, black woman is um, is being really horrifically grilled on, on her thoughts, presumably uh, because that's happening. We'll see a flow of of
1: online hate to to mirror that. Is that is that what you see? Absolutely. So uh, a big uh, part of our understanding of the nature of hate, both online and offline, is to figure out the sort of temporal dimension, sort of when it happens. Like crime, generally speaking, tends to cluster in space. You know, there are certain areas uh, that are more prone to criminal activity, including hate crime. But it's also important to understand the sort of a temporal nature of crime and especially hate crime. And it does tend to cluster around events or what we call trigger events. And so we find following sort of court cases like you just described, but also political votes following terror attacks. We get this continuous sort of repeated pattern of spike in, in hate uh, around, around the events. If it's a terror attack, then usually we see a spike in hate targeting folks on the street that look a bit like the perpetrator, for example. Uh, if it's a court case, it may be uh, hate crimes targeting somebody who's who's in that courtroom. Um, and ultimately, it, it, what we're seeing is that these events act as triggers. And this kind of ties into a, an established psychological theory, uh, which is the justification and suppression uh, hypothesis of hate. And what that theory suggests is that we're all prejudiced. None of us is without prejudice. Even those that say they are free of prejudice are probably just, you know, sticking their head in the sand and ignoring the fact that they are. We are prejudiced because we are brought up in a world that is in itself uh, biased. The media is biased off Parents are biased, our friends are biased, and we absorb this information like a sponge as we grow up in society. So even if we're unaware of those prejudices, they're there. They're, those negative stereotypes, those very simplistic, uh, uh, or very often incorrect pictures that we have of different groups in society, in our minds, sit there waiting to be evoked at the right time, if you like. But we're constantly suppressing uh those prejudices because it's socially unacceptable to express a prejudice so Mm. you know following the civil rights movement the women's liberation movement the lgbtq plus rights movement it becomes It become increasingly unfashionable to express prejudice in in good company so to speak so if you do have a prejudice you may express it in a in a in a a closed circle of like-minded folks maybe in the pub or in the home but you'd never express it in public But when an event like a terror attack or, say, a nefarious politician comes along and says, this group are to blame for the way you feel right now, the fact that you haven't got a job, the fact that uh, your kids can't get a a place in, in that school, when those events occur, when those politicians start blaming certain outgroups, that increases what's called the justification Forces. So we've got this constant balance, like a devil and angel on our shoulder, the suppression and justification force is constantly in balance. And when the justification forces uh, greatly outweigh those suppression forces, those forces where we want to, you know, look decent and not prejudiced, then prejudice can come out. And that can sometimes manifest in hate under the right set of circumstances. Mm. I've spoken to thousands of scientists in my career, and
0: it's rare that someone comes onto the program having chosen science for a specific single event. Um, but you were the the victim of a homophobic attack in the street that sort of made you want to wonder why something like this would happen. And, and, and it reminded me of this really just horrific, nonsensical attack that happened on a young girl um, here in Ireland, a black girl by the name of Alana Quinn Idris, who was just set upon with her friend and uh had an absolutely horrific injury just for no reason and and i wonder when you you contemplate your own incident and, and incidents like these just random acts of violence what what like what is it that you're hoping to to deconstruct with your research what are you hoping to learn um and and how what
1: might we be able to use what you're learning to reduce those sort of incidents you're right in, in saying that it, it was an interesting and bizarre way into becoming a social scientist. The attack was around about 25 years ago, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was an indiscriminate one. It felt like it was planned. I think the three perpetrators that attacked me outside that gay bar were waiting outside that gay bar because right. they knew that it was a gay bar and that they wanted to pick their victim because of that identity. Mm. that's what that's what really stuck with me you know I have been a victim of you know uh, violence in the street in the past on i say a Saturday night which wasn't in any way homophobic and that didn't bother me so much as the attack on me because of my identity and that's what really stuck with me was the fact that I was chosen because who I was and that's an incredibly destabilizing experience it just mm. it stuck with me for months and months and it still sticks with me now and you're right. I, I was. I wanted to become a journalist, but after the attack, I really needed to figure out so many answers to questions that I had about about why my attackers chose me that day, and you know, what was it? Was there anything sort of biologically innate in them that was different from me that that created this this situation that, that turned them into perpetrators? You know, and. Through my journey, my 20-year scientific journey, um, I discovered, in fact, that there was very little that separated them from me. There isn't really anything different, biologically speaking, in our brains or the neurological wiring between the perpetrators of hate and, and their victims. In fact, they're very, very, very similar, if not almost identical in many ways. What is different is the life experiences that each of each of those uh, go through, in essence. And I learned through my journey... Really. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so, so you're saying environment creates hate, and and nothing absolute, else, as far as you ab- can see. Absolutely, I mean. In the book, I detail having my brain scanned to try and dissect uh, parts of my brain to figure out, metaphorically speaking, thankfully, I uh, try to find out if you know if I had any signs of prejudice in my in my in my brain waves, if you like. There's a neuroscience that sort of focuses on that. And, and after that journey with the neuroscientists and th- looking through all those those sort of uh, uh, scientific works in in neuroscience journals you find that our, our neurological wiring is surprisingly similar, It's surprisingly similar uh, amongst, amongst all human beings. What, and there's nothing innate about hate. There's no, you're not born, you don't, you don't come into this world with a prejudice. You don't no, come but, into uh, this world.
0: Uh, aren't there like some certain brain injuries that make you more likely to, to react violently? Am I wrong with...
1: Well, there, you can have a brain injury that can, that can, for example, change your coping mechanisms. So, right. for example, I do detail in the book uh, one in- instance where a guy gets hit and comes off his bike and within a few weeks he's thinking these outrageous, homophobic and and uh, racist thoughts that he'd never really experienced before and it really, really freaked him out, as you can imagine, quite a liberal mm. guy who's a journalist, writes for The Guardian, etc. And... Um, what he discovered was that the injury to his prefrontal cortex, the very front of his brain, the sort of executive control area, had been damaged, which which kind of then uh, made him less able to silence some of the weirder, darker thoughts that he was having that that, that, that essentially had been kind of inculcated uh, since childhood from his upbringing in Liverpool. I think what that study exemplifies is the brain is important in, in processing information, but we have the power to... to put the brakes on it using that prefrontal cortex and he he had experienced prejudiced thoughts in the same way that I experience prejudiced thoughts. It's just that the front of my brain wasn't damaged, and I and I can actually put the brake on and have yeah. a word with myself. I mean, this particular person never actually verbalized his his thoughts, but the thoughts themselves were were disturbing enough for him to really be worried about it. But ultimately, uh, you know, brain damage can obviously change uh, behaviors to some extent. But in the average healthy brain, in the average healthy brain, what we're seeing is surprisingly similar neurological wiring uh, between the perpetrators and the victims. And and the key difference that I learned in the book was that it's down to what I what I outline as accelerants—those kinds of social and psychological forces that that you experience while you grow up and you become an adult—that shape you in a certain way. And it's it's those forces that are far more important in in sort of shaping how you behave uh, and the expression of hatred later in life than anything kind of innately biological. So let's talk about the science because it must be a difficult thing to study hate Um, in the
0: same way it must be difficult to study violence because ethically you can't get people to hate and then see what happens. Tell tell me about some of the, the research that's been done historically to
1: measure hate. Sure. I think. Well, we always start with prejudice because that is obviously a usually a precursor to hatred. You can't really hate without having a prejudice to nurture in the first place. And you know, there's a lot of social psychology that's looked at prejudice since the 1950s. And um, Allport was probably one of the most famous psychologists uh, living in America at the time who who studied who studied prejudice in a, in a serious in a serious way. And he conducted a range of experiments uh, to try and understand. Uh, what hatred was, or what prejudice was that could lead to hatred, and how to how to stem it. Um, and one of the works that he cites repeatedly throughout his career is uh, uh, the work of Tajfel, who uh, came up with the in-group out-group dynamic, um, and ultimately. To confirm that in-group out-group dynamic, i.e., where the in-group favors itself uh, at the uh, at the loss or the disparagement of the out-group, he designed the uh, minimal group paradigm experiment, and a very simple experiment, um, nothing nothing uh, too complicated. But it, essentially, you repeat it, you repeat this experiment in class every year uh, at my university, and we, you get the same results ultimately. But what hmm. it what it does is it it, it shows that humans enter this world um, with a preference for being in a group. You know, we're very group-based as a species. Um, right. This is kind of an evolutionary trait, if you like. You're essentially, uh, uh, you're more likely to survive if you have uh, well-cooperating groups of individuals as opposed to being on your own, for example. Um and ultimately, this groupishness is is something that we are born with. It seems to be something that we're born with. Um, and and Tajfel was interested in finding out whether or not um, this preference for being in an in-group was, uh, you know, benign, or in some circumstances could it be kind of malignant, and where the out-group suffer sort of discrimination possibly. And quite simply, he got his students in a classroom and separated them into two groups on on the most minimal of differences. Hence, the minimal group paradigm. Uh, the name for the experiment. Uh, in fact the way he did it was by asking uh, both, both groups of students to guess the amount of uh, marbles in a jar um, and uh, he then separated them into overestimators and underestimators. Now, actually, yes. uh, ultimately, their, their guesses were irrelevant. He just randomly allocated them to these two separate groups. But they, they had this identity all of a sudden. We're the overestimators. They're the underestimators. Uh, but, you know, it was a minimal difference. It wasn't based on skin color. It wasn't based on gender or even shoe size. It was just the most ridiculous kind of separation yes. of two groups. And then he went about asking them to uh, dish out resources, to each other essentially and and each person then knowing which group they belong to would allocate some resources to their group versus the other group and ultimately at the end of the resource allocation task he would tot up the number of resources allocated and then he found in his first experiment that indeed folks tended to allocate more resources to their own group versus <laughs> the other group yeah and this repeat over and over and over again year upon year upon year and we do it now in, in psychology classes in, in 2022 and we still find the same result we have this slight inclination to favor our in-group regardless of the dividing lines and you know this isn't something that's that's bad in essence. This is, I guess, this is an innate trait that we seem to have acquired through evolution, but it can be weaponized. And when it is weaponized, this is where we see the the sort of uh, derogation of the out-group and, and potentially discrimination stemming from it. And ultimately, right. hate uh, can flow.
0: Uh, there is a, uh, another uh, experiment I think you cover in the book about hot sauce. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, t- tell me about this, because I think it's a really interesting
1: one this is a really interesting one because it this is this kind of identifies the notion that um, when we're when humans are reminded of their own mortality they tend to uh, group together and and regress to their uh, in-group more than in in normal times when they're not thinking about their own deaths this sounds somewhat abstract but if you th- imagine a situation where um, you're attacked by a, a terrorist organization your country is attacked by a terrorist organization of folks that 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 say aren't typically uh, part of your in group, so to speak. In those situations, we are reminded of our deaths, in a sense. We we think about mortality because we're thinking, wow, you know, people have died. You know, people die. I die. You know, all of a sudden, you're reminded of your of your inevitable death, whenever that may come. Now, psychologists have, have been intrigued by this constant reminder of, of mortality because they believed, in, they hypothesized that uh, such reminders, such sort of uh, obsession with, with death in, in certain points in time, can be associated with a change in behavior. And that behavior can usually manifest as a, a tighter bond with the in group. Uh, at the expense of the outgroup. And this experiment with the hot sauce was conducted in the United States. And this, essentially, the idea was you know, the hypothesis being uh, if folks are reminded of their own death, they're far more likely to dish out more hot sauce to an outgroup than their in group. That was the idea, i.e., they're more likely to be nasty to the outgroup versus the in group. Um, the students weren't aware of what the experiment was. Uh, they were only told that uh, they were split into two groups Democrats and Republicans. And so, naturally, they thought this was an experiment about political allegiance and uh, differences between those allegiances. And ultimately, uh, one group were told to think about their inevitable deaths uh, before the experiment, while another group were told to think about what they saw on television last night. And it transpired throughout the experiment that those who were told to think about uh, their inevitable deaths uh, dished out far more hot sauce uh, to their opponents than, than those who who uh, were, were told to recount what they watched out, watched on television. And this is called, in the, in the research, uh, uh, terror management theory. We manage our terror of our own deaths by bonding closer with our in-group, often at the expense of the out-group. And in this case, this was demonstrated by sloshing in way more hot sauce uh, uh, to the member of the out-group after those students were reminded of their deaths. A very peculiar experiment, but one that's been repeated over and over in different ways.
0: What do we do about this then? Tell me about the Duke Polarization Lab and how they try to see if
1: they can break down prejudice. Sure, I, a really fascinating experiment here because a, a lot of the anxiety and worry about social media and its pervasiveness in our lives is that it's making things way worse because it's kind of polarizing in a sense. We end up in echo chambers of very like-minded people who share very similar kinds of information and we never get to hear the arguments on the other side, so to speak. So ultimately what that means is that our world views are constantly being reinforced by these online echo chambers, if you like. Um, And it's true, algorithms are are known to reinforce viewpoints because ultimately algorithms are designed to keep you engaged um, online for longer so you can be advertised to. For, you know, it's, it, essentially, the, the more extreme content that you see, uh, the, the more likely you're to spend online uh, for longer. And interestingly, uh, the, the Duke Polarisation Lab was was intrigued by the hypothesis that uh, exposing uh, folks inside echo chambers to alternative viewpoints might actually break the echo chamber, break that bubble in some way. Um, so it, the experiment followed the, followed along the lines of, right, uh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, I'm going to pay you $10 uh, a week, so uh, you agree to look at a few posts from the opposing side, uh, just to see if if your viewpoints uh, change, it sounded like a great idea. It sounded like it probably would work. You know, the idea that you know if you do expose somebody to alternative information, it may soften their opinion. Mm. There were high hopes for the experiment. High hopes um, turned out that. Uh, being exposed to uh, uh, counter, counter, counter information actually entrenched them in their bubbles. <laughs> uh, they became far more Republican or far more Democrat in their, in their outlooks, which was, Something that was not expected. And what I found from that study, which was fascinating, was it kind of flies in the face of some of the classic social psychology that suggests, you know, being exposed or, or having positive contact with people different from you can increase tolerance. And in this case, it didn't seem to do that. But I think there's something pretty unique about social media that's different from sort of the offline world. And that is, I think, we have a certain set of expectations when we go onto Twitter, Uh, to post or engage in in dialogue. We expect it to be pretty rough. I think we expect it to be uh, uh, quite argumentative. It's just the nature of the platform, and it's just what we've come to expect from it. So if we... Essentially, what a psychologist would say is that the people are primed before they go onto Twitter, primed to expect arguments. So they, so they kind of put up their barriers more uh, and uh, yeah. put, put on their armor, and they expect a fight, if you like. And so, you know, trying to destabilize uh, echo chambers using, you know, uh, opposite viewpoints um, didn't quite work in this setting because of the expectations of the medium. I think if you did that. Uh, on the streets, if you like, or in a pub, um, the results might look quite different.
0: But um, isn't it true, though, that, that, that our prejudices c- can be sort of fluid uh, depending on, on the things that are happening around us? Like, for example, um, Mo Salah and, and
1: Liverpool, there was,
0: there was a sort of a, a change in behaviour associated with his rise and then subsequent fall and rise again
1: yes and i cover this in the book quite extensively because it's a really interesting case and it kind of does demonstrate that kind of uh, contextual element of our prejudices and 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 you know ultimately they they are shaped by what's happening around us what we're seeing what we're hearing and so on and so forth so Mo salah joined uh, liverpool in 2017 in the midst of a spate of terror attacks and one of the highest increases in anti-muslim hatred that we've seen on the streets but also online and because of his outstanding performance, and because that he was quite open about his his Muslim identity on the pitch and on social media, uh, the the Liverpool fans. Uh, attitude towards Muslims more generally in the Islamic faith softened. They seemed to become somewhat more tolerant because Mo Salah was performing so well and ultimately was uh, helping that team succeed. He was winning trophy after trophy, you know, he was award after award that, that season. And ultimately, he was presenting a positive stereotype of a Muslim, if you like, and that season, believe it or not, the fans of Liverpool Football Club were actually singing praise to to Islam around the stands of Anfield. Uh, and there are videos on YouTube of Liverpool fans in pubs in Merseyside singing praise uh, uh, to, to Islam. And it's something you'd never thought you'd see. And mm. what we also saw in combination with that is a reduction in in anti-Muslim hatred on the streets in Merseyside and a reduction in anti-Muslim Twitter content, while around Merseyside, you know, the rest of the country, we saw a massive increase. It seems to be that, that this positive portrayal uh, via Mo Salah's outstanding performance for that season had this amazing uh, uh, prejudice reduction uh, effect. But when his performance dipped, it all shifted. And ultimately, we saw uh, anti-Muslim uh, hate crimes and, and sentiment online increase again in, <sighs> in, in that Moses idea. So what, what it teaches us, I think, is that positive stereotypes are incredibly powerful. They mm. are incredibly powerful at reducing prejudice, but they can be short-lived primarily because once you step out of that stadium once you step out of the game uh, you walk back into your old life where those prejudices were already you know began to be formed etc you're, you're going back to your old yeah. life and you're out of your bubble in that moment and all of a sudden those negative stereotypes are being reinforced again and what happened in in the case of Mo Salah is that ultimately you know he was part of Liverpool Football Club's outstanding performance, uh, and then he wasn't, and all of a sudden uh, he fell out of favour, and ultimately that that shaped the expression of prejudice uh,
0: and and the and the level of violence on the streets, which is is really depressing in a way, but it says something about the fickle nature of, um, I'm not going to say Liverpool fans because I'm a Liverpool fan, um, but a fickle a fickle nature of us um, essentially it does. Uh, Really interesting speaking with you. The book is called The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. the author is Matthew Williams. Matthew, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you.